regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Welcome to an episode of Datacast. Today I'm on the live with Dr. Genevieve Patterson. She is the chief scientist at Trash, a startup that is developing computational filmmaking tools for mobile iPhoneographers. Before that, she was a postdoc researcher at Microsoft Research New England. Her work is about creating dialogue between AI and people. Her interests include video understanding, visual attribute discovery, human in the loop system, fine grain object recognition, medical image understanding, and active learning. Genev received her PhD from Brown University in 2016 under the direction of Dr. James Hayes. So, uh, Genev, welcome to the show. Hey, James. Great to, great to be here. Awesome, awesome. So, uh, let's start our conversation talking about your educational experience. I uh, saw so that you study uh, electrical engineering and mathematics from University of Arizona. So, can you quickly go over your undergrad experience? Sure. So I was lucky um, that the state that I grew up in uh, had this program where high-performing high school seniors got to go to college for for free. And that really started me out on a theme um, throughout my whole career of trying to look for funding sources for my scientific inquiry. And anyway, I, I ended up going to school in my hometown and the most advanced topic of research at my university was optical systems. Um, they built uh, parts of the Mars rover, parts of the Hubble telescope at that university. And so I, I became really interested in the basic physics that went into building those, those systems. And as a result, I started, I studied electrical engineering and math, as you said. I see. So after finishing your undergrad, you pursue a master's degree in uh, electrical machines from the University of Tokyo. So what motivated you to make this decision and how was your experience in Japan? Yeah, so uh, like I was saying before that I um, I got started uh, at the very beginning of my career with this um, this great inspiration to always try to look for someone to fund me to do science. And I think that it's, I don't know, a fantastic time in history to be a scientist. That's definitely not true. Um, you know, maybe two or three centuries ago, it would probably have been difficult for someone from, you know, some random background in some tiny town in nowhere part of America to, to pursue whatever uh, science they were interested in. But um, I had that experience as an undergrad, and then when I was thinking about uh, finishing my undergraduate career, I thought, you know, where do I go next? Um, I, I said how my university was really strong in optical systems, in, in electrical engineering for uh, space-going electronics, and also in, in creating uh, optics. And so I, I really, like, developed this passion for for basic physics at that level in my career. And so I thought I would, I'd love to study more um, uh, optical materials, uh, which included uh, superconductors. You know, I was very bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and I had these um, ideas about learning the, the mysteries of physics um, when I was about 21. And, and I thought, where, where am I going to go to study that more? And so... I blanketed the country and really the world um, with applications, and I ended up winning um, uh, a Japanese government scholarship to study uh, at the oldest university in Japan, uh, the University of Tokyo. And um, I had a wonderful time there, and and I studied uh, 
magnetic levitation for trains using superconductors in, in applications like making trains float instead of making them have wheels. Um, and, and kind of a side effect of studying in Japan was that I, I developed a real um, fandom for trains in general. Mm-hmm. And so, so I ended up doing my master's degree in, um, uh, uh, in the design of a motor that was developed from a train motor. And I was trying to like redesign it for use in ships. Uh, and, and it was a, a permanent magnet, uh, motor design. And, and I really, um, you know, it was the first time, uh, you know, it was early in my career. It was the first time that I switched from, one topic, which I came into to my graduate studies, studying uh, devices built from superconductor technology, and I switched to magnet technology. So it was the first time that I that I had to make a switch, mm-hmm. um, but I loved it. Like that, it, it it turned out that my education didn't stop or slow after my undergraduate career. I, I loved my undergrad, and when I went on to graduate school, it was a whole new world, and I got to learn a whole new thing. And, um, yeah, and I loved, I loved living in Japan. Uh, it, was, it was a fantastic experience, and I would definitely recommend, you know, applying to uh, scholarships at, at Asian universities to, to anyone who's thinking about doing a master's degree. Awesome, awesome. Uh, yeah, that, that sounds brilliant. I mean, actually, when I'm uh, doing research on, on your profile, I learned that uh, for, for that work in the motor design that you just mentioned, you actually won an award, isn't it? You won the... Yeah, yeah, that was, um, uh, I was, that was like a perfect wrap-up to my, my two years in Japan that I spent um, probably right when I arrived uh, at my, my master's program, I had to do a lot of research to catch up to everyone else in my lab. And I think that's a very common, um, common workflow when, when a student joins a graduate program, joins a new lab, joins a new company. It takes you a little while to catch up on the work that, that's being done there. So I spent you know, maybe the first six months doing that, and then the next year and a half, uh, maybe a little more than that, I spent designing uh, prototyping, testing uh, this motor that, that I had uh, thought up um, because my advisor said, here's a hard problem, just figure something out. And uh, what I figured out lined up with what he thought uh, we should be doing. And then um, kind of a nice thing, I, I won this like best student paper award or best best paper, I think. I think that the way it was, it was outstanding paper, outstanding paper for someone under the age of 30, or maybe it was someone who was still in their graduate program. I can't remember. But anyway, um, it was it was enough that uh, uh, the conference for um, electrical machines and systems, which is a huge conference, like big international thing, thousands of people attend to to show electrical systems that um, the people thought it was really fun there. And uh, I don't know if you're, if you're interested in hearing exactly how I thought of this this design. It was a challenge that the specific topic didn't didn't transfer to what I decided to do later in my career, mm-hmm. but the the way of thinking was something that I I've carried with me since then. The problem that I was faced with was that the lab that I was working at used a a linear motor. They used a kind of motor where there are either permanent magnets or electromagnets lined up in the tracks of a train. So you've been on a subway before and in very deep subways in you know, several big cities around the world, um, there are large permanent magnets in between the tracks. Mm-hmm. And instead of having a single motor that's like on board in the train and drives the wheels so that they can get up a steep hill, um, the way that this motor works is that it has the electrical coils inside the train and the magnets on the ground. And so as you push electricity through those electrical coils, as you run electricity through there, it'll change the magnetic field and pull the train to line up with the magnets that are on the ground. And I thought that was just such a fascinating idea that like half of the motor is not even on the train. That's incredible. And the it was a, a very good, very good motor, and the reason that it's used in trains is that it's high torque. It can like pull a lot of weight. You can really pull a lot of weight that way. And so my advisor said to me, "Well, we have this question from Hitachi Corporation that they would like more efficient, high torque motors for their ships. So how can we take this motor that works really well 
in a train situation and make it apply to a ship because there's no track for a ship. And so I had to figure out how to turn it into a rotary motor, which is the more traditional shape of motors. Um, and the reason that I won this, this award was that I, I figured out how to make the magnetic field move in a kind of unusual path. It's a little bit difficult to describe uh, on, on a radio show, mm-hmm. um, on a podcast, uh, but the, the crux of it was that I, I made this transverse flux path. And that kind of geometric thinking, I think, was super valuable to me later when I started doing things like computer graphics. Mm-hmm. That being able to think spatially, that was the first time I had been really challenged to think in a spatial way and and. I don't know. It was it was a wonderful experience because I went into it thinking I'm I'm a student of physics. I love you know Maxwell's equations. Um, I'm I'm inspired by these people who discovered the mysteries of electromagnetics. But what maybe my, my biggest achievement was really just learning how to think in a spatial way instead of a formulaic way, and that was something that I, I took with me to graduate school or to my PhD course. Fantastic. Um, so. Go going over that, you um, after finishing your master, you decided to pursue a PhD degree in uh, computer science at uh, Brown University. So, mm-hmm. what prompted you to make this um, academic pursuit? Right. So, uh, so after I I finished, and and I'm I hope that this this doesn't happen anytime very soon, but it's probably a danger for anyone um, who's coming out of school that right after I graduated was the large economic recession in the U.S. So I'd finished this great program in Japan and I had this great achievement and I thought, oh, I'll go home and I'll get this job and I'll start my career as an engineer. Um, but uh, there was this huge recession and it was it was difficult. It was more difficult than I thought to, to find the job that I wanted. And so I thought, why am I even leaving graduate school? I love studying. I had this wonderful experience exploring a whole new field when I came to Tokyo. So why, why don't, why am I stopping? Maybe I should continue. And that is when I went back to my old friend applying for scholarships. And I just, again, papered the country. I probably applied to 40 graduate schools and, and, you know, a dozen scholarship programs. And, um, something that I had found interesting in my former lab. So I had been in this lab where we studied big industrial systems, trains, ships, um, uh, commuter infrastructure, and I had been really interested in the machines that people use to commute, but other people in my lab had been really interested in how to make the process more efficient, and they were using machine learning to understand how to schedule the trains and how to, how to change traffic patterns. And I thought that was super cool. So part of the graduate schools that I applied to were computer science graduate schools for machine learning. And that is the program that I ended up getting accepted to. And um, I, uh, in the end, when, when I decided to, to, to go to Brown, I was thinking about continuing either to work on electrical machines and electrical systems or to switch to machine learning. And it just seemed like, um, I won't say that I had any special... Uh, intuition about the future, but at that moment, it seemed like it was a good time to be studying electrical engineering, or to be studying machine learning instead of electrical engineering. About eight years ago, I thought, machine learning seems like it's clearly useful now, and it can only get more useful, and I really want to be in this exciting new field, and that's that's how I ended up, again, changing my topic of study and going to a whole different place. So at Brow, um, your supervisor was mm-hmm. uh, Dr. James Hayes, who who is a leading researcher in computer vision, computer graphics, mm-hmm. robotics, mm-hmm. and machine learning. So can you talk more about the, the process of finding a, a research advisor as a grad student? Absolutely. So I, uh, I didn't know this before going to graduate school, um, but lots of every university handles the process of matching a student with an advisor a little differently. And... Often, uh, a very successful track is if a student is already doing their master's degree at a university, and that way they spend time like understanding exactly what kind of research is being done there, which, re- which professors are doing what kinds of research, and they can sort of decide in advance who is doing something they're interested in and line up with, with what they're doing and make, you know, make themselves uh, interesting to that professor to hire because they're doing work that's related to what that professor is doing. So what I did was was different than um, this 
course that I'm sort of recommending, which is it's great to work on a master's degree someplace or do a fifth year master's and, and line yourself up with, with a, a researcher that you know about. Instead, um, I kind of benefited from luck. And I don't know what percentage of graduate students have luck uh, in this way, but I would encourage all students who are applying to grad schools to try to have this kind of luck. I applied to a bunch of different schools with slightly different research statements that when you apply to a graduate school, when you, especially when you apply for a PhD program, you're trying to show the faculty at that school what kind of work you've done in the past, what's your dream for your ideal PhD thesis, and how you're going to accomplish that, and you want to convince that, um, that advisor that you're going to be able to do those things and that it's worth their time to invest their grant money in you. And so I applied to lots of places, and I happened to write uh, an essay about using machine learning to accomplish tasks, application-specific tasks, and how I was you know, very familiar with doing applications research because I had done so much applications research uh, in my master's. And uh, uh, Dr. Hayes, my uh, Professor Hayes, my advisor, he read my uh, essay and it happened to really line up with what he wanted to do. He was uh, a young professor then. He was just starting out um, his, his faculty career. And it happened to line up a lot with, with what he wanted to do. And so it was kind of like a blind date and we just matched and we had chemistry and we wanted to work on the same things. And when I met him, he was showing me his research and I thought that's super cool. And he saw me and thought she knows how to, to do statistics and she knows how to write software. So that's great. And so it was just luck um, kind of that we, we had a really good chemistry, but I think that part of, part of that luck was that I also visited a bunch of other graduate schools and I applied to a lot of other places and I knew what not having chemistry looked like. Mm -hmm. So I had that feeling that, that my match with him was good. Luck only happens when you show effort, right? Like because of the fact that you absolutely wrote a bunch of different um, research statements, uh, like you try out for different universities, you know, you, you increase your likelihood of being lucky. So yeah. Yeah, and I think that even though my previous research wasn't directly applicable to to uh, to James's research because I had shown that I was capable of writing a paper, winning an award for that paper, that he could see that I had the capacity to to do that kind of research. So it's it's a hurdle, and I think that it's difficult that the world is so competitive. But that's another thing that's really. Um, something that I would always advise uh, people who are looking to do a PhD to think about trying to do first is try to write a research paper, try to get into a workshop, try to try to publish your work, try to do something even like this podcast, like try to put yourself out and show that you're capable of doing that work because that's a really big component of what faculty are looking for when they're looking for graduate students. So during your first year at Brow, you built and maintained the Sun Attributes Dataset, which is a widely used resource for scene understanding. Um, so how did you go about collecting and uh, constructing that dataset? Right, so this is uh, something that surprised me a little bit, but I have since learned in the last you know eight years of my, my career that this is the most typical way for any uh, serious machine learning researcher to start out that they have to build their own data set. If they have a project, if they are doing a new application, even if it seems like there's related data sets out there, and absolutely people should investigate related data sets, that if you're doing, if you're answering a new question, that question probably requires that you collect new data. So I, I was interested in how computer vision could understand locations. You know, I had come from, from this lab where I was trying to understand how traffic patterns flowed and how, how people moved in spaces. And so I was still really interested in the question of how do we understand the natural world and how do we understand the place that we're in and how do we understand how people are going to use places. And so I, I wanted to be able to do scene understanding using computer vision. And scene understanding is really like... You know, can you recognize what scene you're in? Can you recognize the objects that are in that scene? Can you recognize how a human would behave in that scene? Can you understand how a robot might need to interact with that scene? That's the kind of broad, broad topic that I was working on. 
And and I went about collecting this data set um, using Mechanical Turk, uh, which uh, has been my constant partner for the last the last eight years. Um, uh, it's a crowdsourcing tool made available by by Amazon, and it's staffed by people mostly in the United States and India, but from really all walks of life. Um, people from lots of other different countries, people who who do this sort of as a full-time job, people who do it as a part-time job because they have, you know, their moms and they're staying home taking care of their kids or their teenagers and they have to go to school part-time and, or they're taking care of their parents or, or any reason that they want to work remotely and they want to work, um, you know, in, in little bits. Um, they work for Mechanical Turk. And so I, I built this data set um, by... Uh, really learning how to talk to crowd workers about how they understood pictures of places. And that's how I discovered what categories I wanted to label. That's how I discovered what questions I wanted to ask them. And uh, uh, yeah, I ended up really becoming, that's probably what I am right now most well known for in the computer vision field is, is understanding how to make large data sets. I see. Uh, and uh, talking more about scene understanding, so in one paper called uh, Basic Level Scene Understanding back in 2013, you um, collaborate with uh, some of the researchers from MIT, Princeton, and, and University of Washington to build a system that can automatically understand 3D scenes from a single image. So can you, um, you know, uh, provide some more detail in terms of some uh, methodology and some of the results from, from right. the project? Right. Yeah. So that was, that was a... A great um, collaboration because it was um, so broad that, that we worked with people from from so many places and they brought in a lot of different perspectives and to begin that paper uh, the group that, that I was collaborating with at MIT which was Antonio Tralba and Ode Oliva that they they look at the question of scene understanding from a slightly more psychological perspective so that was that was really exciting um, for me, where again, I, I had this opportunity to learn more about the psychology of what goes into how people are, are perceiving their scenes. And um, the, the fun part about that, that paper was, was starting out from this kind of psychological questioning. How, how are people understanding what the most relevant objects are in front of them? If you, you walk into a dark room and you switch on the light and you have to, I don't know, run forward or pick up a glass or or put something down how do you figure out on a very basic level uh deep in your cognitive brain how to, where to put things and so that that kind of inspiration of how are humans like operating in spaces uh was the first question and um and then from there we we tried to you know answer it using computer vision and answer it using the data set that, that i talked about before the methodology really came down to asking questions about how people interact with scenes. What is this basic, almost unconscious way that, that humans interact with scenes from several different perspectives, from the psychology from perspective, from the like natural image statistical perspective, from the graphics perspective, how would, how would you frame a camera? How would you, if you were trying to reconstruct a 3D model of the objects in the scene, how would you do that? So, so this was was fun because we had researchers who were all in slightly different fields trying to ask similar questions, and that that led us that led us to ask even more questions. And yeah, that's how we that's how we got to the results from that paper. So, in the same year, in another paper called "Bootstrapping Fine Grain Classifier: Active Learning with a Crown the Loop," uh, presented in the NIPS conference back in 2013, you collaborate with um, some uh, people from um, University of uh, California, San Diego, and Caltech to propose an iterative crowd-enabled active learning algorithm for building high-precision visual classifier from unlabeled images. Can you give a brief summary of the approach and some of the experimental results from the paper? Uh, that was a little paper. Uh, it That was an interesting paper because it was, um, it was kind of the first time that I decided to pick a research direction on my own. That in the last couple of the papers that I had talked about scene understanding and when I was doing uh, machine research, that I had been really guided by my advisors. And my advisors had been pushing me to ask interesting questions, but they were the ones who were like really deciding the direction of the research. And this was my very first 
attempt to try to decide the direction of the research myself, which which is difficult. And uh, this this paper ended up being a little bit shorter than I expected because it's hard to do that the first time. Um, and and I the question at this point in my career that I was so excited about, which uh, kind of led me for the next four years or something to to keep working on the same thing, was how can we make annotating data cheaper? That I had spent about a year, maybe a little more than a year, annotating this this large scene data set, scene attributes with attributes and scene labels and, and all this stuff and, and asking questions of that data set. And, and it was so expensive and much more labor intensive than I thought it would be. And I thought, how can we do this faster and cheaper? And so I thought about using active learning. Active learning is um, really just an online learning method for if you if you can only get if you have either if labeling is very expensive or if for some reason you can only sample the labels very rarely. Like if you are, I don't know, you're spying on um, uh, some communications channel and you're trying to reconstruct the message, but you can only kind of sample every once in a while what the message is. Um, active learning is about how to uh, how to pick the next thing that you're going to sample based on what you've been sampling before. And so, so as an online learning method, you know it's always going to be an approximation of the uh, the true distribution, but uh, sometimes it can be a very good true distribution. So, so this. Um, this paper was about how to, yeah, how to use active learning to quickly get to classifiers that are similarly precise mm -hmm. and and high recall as classifiers that have been trained on a fully labeled data set. Mm -hmm. And the the second thing that I was really interested in is after I had spent all this time with Mechanical Turk, which is real people, real humans with full human brains answering very simple questions about images like, is this indoors or outdoors? Is it raining or is it sunny? Is it snowing or is it a heat wave? That they, they were answering all these very simple questions. And I felt like I'm not using their brains. They have these huge, complicated human brains and I'm not asking them very complicated questions. So in that paper, I sort of set up a user interface where I was hoping that the the uh, crowd workers could give me a little bit more insight into what my next active question could be. And so this, this paper was also about how to design that user interface to try to get a little bit more information from people than the simple labels. I see. And kind of related to that topic, it seems like it paving the way very well um, to the process of writing your PhD thesis, right? Uh, so yeah. this was titled Collective Insight Crowd Driven Image Understanding. And my understanding is like you was using like like I said, active learning and uh, different polling techniques approach in order to to um, leverage the crowd to discover uh, different taxonomies of visual attributes to build detectors with minimal supervision and can uh, label massive data set you know in uh, in a more economical way. So so can you just uh, I guess you know give uh, a general overview about your end to end process of uh, doing your, your thesis. Yeah, so so that workshop paper uh, led me to write a full conference paper and then another conference paper where I made another data set using a similar technique. Um, and and I um, yeah, I, I suppose that, that you hit all the big points that I, I really wanted to figure out how to make as large of data sets as possible, but to spend less money doing it. And a difficulty of that, uh, a central crisis is that if if a researcher is going to use a machine learning method in order to label their data set, how do they know that they're not biasing their future learned algorithms based on how the algorithm they used to label their data set worked? So in the first workshop paper that I had, it was how can I use nice bootstrapping method plus maybe asking the crowd for, for some more informative responses in order to bootstrap these classifiers. And then in the next two papers that I wrote, it was all about how do I make sure that the bootstrapping machine learning that I was using, whatever, you know, I started out with SVMs and then I went on to CNNs, or SVMs based on low-level features and then SVMs based on CNNs and then end-to-end -end trained CNNs to make my classifiers for bootstrapping, how do I make sure that when I labeled that, that it didn't bias my data set later? And that got me super interested in data set bias, which uh, I recently had a big victory in, actually. You 
of course, are familiar with face recognition mm-hmm. and, and, and how it's being used in, in many places in our lives these days. And there is an American company called Axon that was that sells body cameras. They sell police equipment. They sell equipment to police and they sell uh, weapons and they also sell body cameras. And they were developing their business into being a, a data analytics offering for body camera footage. And I wrote an article about how the way that they were labeling their data and their promised results were basically impossible because of my understanding of how data set labeling works, uh, which I contend is very accurate. I think that I know a lot about that and that I really understand what's going on because since um, that workshop paper that I worked on, wow, six years ago now, um, that, that I've been really deeply understanding how different ways of labeling data sets can result in data sets that are bad and will not solve the problem that the, the researcher or the defense company is looking for. And so I wrote this article and it, it ended up in a, an IEEE magazine and um, the ethics board for this company, Axon, uh, I interviewed them and I, I asked these questions of them and I published their answers. And last week, Axon decided they were no longer going to offer this product that my points, and it's not like they credited me directly, they credited their ethics board, but they said that my points about how their facial recognition system in body cameras, in, in police-born body cameras, just was too too difficult a problem at the moment to solve. And so they were no longer going to offer this, this service, which I think was so flawed that it would have led to disaster. So, um, yeah, so that's probably my, my most socially impactful work the result of, of all of this work for the last six years. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, facial, facial recognition is pretty, have has been in the news, you know, lately quite quite a lot. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's great that um, you can see, you know, sort of the impact that your um, academic work has on, you know, um, has on a society. And yeah, I yeah. am sure to include that article from, that you just mentioned into the show notes so people can, um, you know, have a look at that and uh, and read it in more in more details. Yeah, that um, would be great. And actually, um, uh, you might you might end up asking me about this later. But I, if if any of your users would like to follow me on Twitter, yeah. I'm Genevieve MP, uh, and also my app is uh, at the Trash App. Mm-hmm. But I've been tweeting about uh, this article on there recently because I was so happy <laughs> that it worked out, and and yeah, and that I. I feel like it's really important in the field of machine learning to to understand that all of the fascinating mathematics and statistics that we're we're learning about and we're building are built on real data collected from the real world and this affects real people. And so when we're thinking about our products, we need to think first about that data that we collected. How did we collect it? What were the flaws or or the vulnerabilities in our methods for collecting? That data and my whole PhD thesis was really about how do you collect data? How do you collect raw data? How do you try to make approximations of your collection method so that it can be cheaper? How do you make sure that you're you're asking the right people the right questions in order to give you the right data? Because in any machine learning problem, the the bulk of the success, the bulk of the failure is always going to be in the quality of the data. So after finishing your PhD, you uh, became a postdoc researcher at Microsoft Research New England. How was your experience there? Yeah, so I, I would recommend Microsoft Research to everyone. <laughs> so I, I ended up being a postdoc there because of my, my work in um, uh, active learning to active learning with the crowd. And uh, I, I loved it. And, and Microsoft Research is where I was able to, Microsoft Research gave me the freedom to write the kind of article that I did that eventually stopped this company, Axon, from using facial facial recognition or or offering facial recognition uh, as a police service. And um, yeah, I I loved working there. They were super supportive. They are a, uh, for anyone who is not familiar with Microsoft Research, they're not... um, they're not a, an R&D division of Microsoft that, where their principal responsibility is making new products for Microsoft. They are a fully independent academic research division that 
creates some of the most exciting uh, research on the planet. Mm -hmm. And so if anyone's thinking, oh, I don't know, I'm not sure I want to work for Microsoft, I'm not sure that I want to do operating systems or or cloud services or anything like that, that's not what Microsoft research is about. It's all about um, fundamental research in the sciences. I see. Yeah, I've actually been following the, um, the Microsoft Research Podcast, uh, which oh, is, great. you know, they, they have a great podcast which have, you know, uh, uh, ongoing series of conversation, you know, with different pe- people and, you know, just, just the depth and, um, you know, the, um, the the cutting edge level of different um, problem that they say solving was, was really cool. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I, I definitely uh, was a bit uh, familiar with, with what you just mentioned. Yeah, that's that's a really great great recommendation to listen to their podcast because they, of course, are are interviewing often researchers at Microsoft Research, and those those people are the best in their field. You know, the best in in uh, computational biology, the best in economics and econometrics, the best in in fundamental mathematical research. So uh, anyone who's starting out their career in computer science or a related field, just starting out by looking at who works at Microsoft Research and what research they do is probably a good place to start. So during your time as a postdoc, you also have uh, teach a couple of graduate level courses. So um, yeah. a course called Data Driven Computer Vision at Brow in uh, spring 2016, and another course called Deep Learning for Computer Vision at, at Tufts University in uh, spring 2017. So um, you know how how was your experience teaching these uh, grad level classes? Yeah. So I um. I was strongly inspired, and and to their credit, uh, I reused a lot of content from the Stanford deep learning classes, which I would recommend to everyone. Uh, they're really good. Um, uh, Andre Carpathy and Justin Johnson did an awesome job of creating a, a curriculum and a lot of uh, homeworks that help students teach themselves. But my, my biggest takeaway was that... Um, computer vision projects take a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And in both of those classes, I really encouraged my students to do about a workshop paper's worth of work, like not a full conference proceeding, but uh, about about what I think would be reasonable to send as a workshop paper to um, NeurIPS or CVPR. And, and I think that I pushed the students very hard. But in the end, they did fascinating things. They did really cool stuff. And um, several of the students from my test course ended up, you know, pursuing their PhDs uh, in, in computer science and use deep learning. So I think that, that it was pretty successful. With your experience, both as a, a student and, you know, also teaching, you know, grad mm-hmm. student, uh, what could be your top three advice for grad students who want to make a dent in the AI machine learning research community? Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm probably going to give similar advice to people who who are in just every every field that you want to find a project that's really interesting to you. Um, that a big part of making a dent in the community of making making a contribution is that you have to spend a lot of hours. You'll you'll work on this for years. You'll spend you know all day into the night, weekends, no holidays, working for a very long time uh, on these topics. And there isn't really any way to to make progress on difficult problems unless you spend a whole lot of time on them. But uh, it's hard to do that if you're not actually interested in the thing that you're doing. So I would, I would, my first advice is give yourself the time and, and trust yourself if you feel like you're not interested in something. You know, don't think that you're a quitter because you don't want to do what the first advisor you work with says to do. Say, this is your life, and you're going to pick the thing that you find the most interesting, even if it isn't perfectly interesting to your, to the the publication community that you're in. Um, I think that my my favorite lesson in both of those uh, deep learning classes that I taught was uh, this example from 2011. Jan LeCun, and I would encourage everyone in this podcast, anyone who's listening, uh, to look this up. Um, in, in 2011, Jan LeCun submitted a self-driving car paper to CVPR. It was about segmenting uh, 
stuff on on the kitty data set which is like roads and uh um street pictures and they had a, a state-of-the-art results on doing that and um of course they used convolutional neural networks um and anyway it was rejected uh, because the reviewers just didn't really understand the technique, mm -hmm. and so they didn't really trust the answers, and it got rejected. It was rejected by all three reviewers. It was a strong reject, and John LeCun was so mad that he wrote a, a rant on Facebook, and I'm sure that if, if you Google this, like someone will have screenshotted it, um, where he said that he thought everyone in CBPR was dumb, basically, and he was never going to submit there again. And that everyone was terrible and no one understood what a genius he was. And he was totally right because the next year it was all deep learning papers. Mm -hmm. One more year and, and you know, 50% of the papers at CDPR were deep learning papers. So, so my, uh, my advice really is find something that you think is interesting and spend a long time researching it. And the longer you spend, the, the more you'll understand it and the more you understand it the bigger your impact will be. And even if other people don't really understand at first how important your work is, that if you stay with it for a long time, you know, you'll you'll find your success. I see. Yeah, the, so. the, time, the timing aspect is, is pretty important, I, I, I see. Um, yeah, so I, I guess those are only two advices, but like stick with it and pick something that you like. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, since uh, last year, uh, you have moved to New York, and you, uh, you know, work, work on your own startup uh, called Trash, which, um, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, develop computational filmmaking tools for mobile iPhoneographers. So, can you give the audience a quick overview of Trash and the product that you have developed? Yeah, you bet. So, um, like I said, uh, uh, maybe actually, maybe I said this before we got started um, that. Uh, my app is available on the App Store. Uh, it's currently only available for iOS uh, because that was the first platform that, that we decided to deploy in, but we will hopefully be deploying uh, for Android in the winter or spring of next year. And um, uh, we're currently in a, a beta period. So in order to be one of our very early users, our first users uh, in our beta period, you'll need an access code to get into Trash. And you can use my name uh, or my nickname, Jen, G-E-N, as your code to get into Trash. And what Trash does is uh, Trash is a way to, to make your videos look really special. So if you download our app and go in, the first thing that you'll see is the, the sharing channel of all of our beta testers are all of our uh, beta users and the kinds of videos that they're making and the, the videos that they've decided that they want to share to the platform. And the way that you make a trash video is you will see a, you can go into your, your camera roll from the app. You select the videos that you've shot recently or videos that you think that you would like to look cooler. And then uh, our AI will pick out the very best moments and it'll arrange them in kind of an interesting sequence and it'll set them to music and it'll make this little music video of, of uh, your special moments. And, and then you're able to save that to your camera roll again so that you can share it to Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, um, or you can share it to Trash. Also, based on my understanding, Trash is part of the uh, NYU Tandon Future Labs, which is a network of right. um, business incubators and accelerators that support early stage ventures in NYC. So uh, what were the benefits uh, of being in this group, in this incubator group, I mean? Yeah, so, so Tandon was, uh, the Future Labs, uh, uh, as part of NYU Tandon was great. Uh, we were given um, office space. So for about a year, uh, we, we were able to um, live rent-free in New York, basically. Our company was able to, to have free office, and we got some great uh, undergraduate interns. Mm -hmm. So students of Tandon, um, were able to apply and come work for us, and that was really invaluable and, and super fun. Um, so, so those were the big uh, advantages besides the network, um, which is always interesting, uh, being able to meet CEOs of other companies. Um, and I think probably the most well-known company from, from this startup is Paperspace, which is uh, GPU cloud hosting. So it was great to be able to get to know uh, the Paperspace folks. Um, yeah, and if any of your listeners are, are NYU students, I would encourage them to uh, apply for our internship program in the fall. Awesome. Yeah, I'll be sure to include some of the links um, that you mentioned so That'd people can 
And then uh, just, I guess, just an overarching question. What are some of the research change in computer vision, uh, object recognition, and scene understanding that you are most excited about in 2019? So uh, my biggest interests in, in computer vision are now kind of evolving into the manipulation of images that I started out my career trying to do object recognition, attribute recognition, try to recognize the important things in objects. And now I'm most interested in how to make our visual experience look cooler. So, so some of the trends that I'm, I'm really interested in are at the intersection of computer vision techniques and uh, augmented reality techniques. So if we're able to do segmentation and key point detection, how can we, you know, apply some augmented reality to images and videos. And that's that's what I'm really excited about. And I think a very big trend at CVPR this year was in 3D body modeling and, and having excellent uh, models of, of the human body and animals in, in images and videos. And I'm really excited about what we'll be able to do with those results. Yeah, so uh, at, the po at this point of our conversation, I want to move on to the, the final segment of our episode. In which I'm gonna ask you like three quick five questions, and then you can share some of the you know tactical advice, and so people can can um, you know get it. Um, Exciting. And then <laughs> the first question is you know what are some of the companies slash research lab you know slash you know universities that are doing exceptional um, AI slash machine learning slash you know I guess computer vision work that you really admire. Oh, so um, the thing that I was just talking about, the kind of uh, uh, transition or the great new opportunities between computer vision and augmented reality um, are based all, I shouldn't say all, but are, are mostly from labs associated with the lab of Michael Black at the Max Planck Institute in Tübingen. And Mac, uh, Michael Black is, is a super famous computer vision researcher who does, who has done the foundational work in, in 3D body modeling. And so that's that's something that I'm really inspired by lately is Michael Black's work and and that of his students and and related uh, uh, collaborators in in doing 3D body understanding. I think that that's going to be super important in in AR features in the future. Um, what is one book that you could recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset? Oh, so I was thinking about that earlier today, and I think that that a book that really changed the way that I think about the world is The Black Swan by Nassim Taleb. And that book is um, about a dozen years old now. Uh, Nassim Taleb is an economist. And his book, The Black Swan, is, is about how to really appreciate random events. So something that I think is important in statistics generally, um, in data science, in all kinds of machine learning, is being able to really appreciate what does randomness look like, what can you do with randomness, and, and how do you recognize when something isn't random, and there's actually a trend happening, and how do you find that trend, or how do you understand when something's not random, and Nassim Taleb's book, The Black Swan, was the first, the first time I really thought about that, or learned about that, and so that's what I would recommend. This is super coincidental, but I literally just finished that book yesterday. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I love it. I thought yeah. I, that's one of my favorite books. Yeah, <laughs> I, I so honestly cool. really enjoy, you know, uh, especially like there was a chapter in which he kind of bashing, you know, um, Gaussian distribution. Like he mm. was saying something like, you know, things in Laya are not, you know, normally distributed. And then, you know, that's his whole concept. Like, you know, there's a few back swan events that kind of like kind of, you know, like push that distribution like into you know, totally new level of scale. Uh, in, in which yeah. I found pretty interesting because, you know, that book literally like kind of like made us think about, you know, sometimes you have to look at science results with a more skeptical view because, you know, we are skeptical about, you know, like social scientists, but we do not, you know, skeptical enough um, about the book from like statisticians yes. you know, with numbers, you know. So, yeah. So, I think um, that that's absolutely true. That's why I think that that book is, is really important because I do wish that... Uh, new data scientists, new mathematicians, and really everyone, like lawmakers, lawyers, doctors, I wish that everyone was more skeptical of, of engineers, the way that they're skeptical of social scientists. And, and that I, I also think that, um, you know, probably 
a reason why I'm really interested in applications of machine learning as opposed to theoretical machine learning is this idea that like everything has to be a Gaussian distribution or we want everything to be nicely differentiable so that we can uh, investigate this kind of clever mathematics that 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 doesn't always have as many applications as you might guess Mm -hmm. and when you actually go into applications research things aren't you know, a Gaussian distribution. They don't, they don't obviously fit this trend. And, and what do you do when it doesn't fit that trend? So uh, yeah, yeah, I love, I love that book because it really developed my ability to be a skeptic for sure. Uh, and the last question is, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the uh, aspiring data scientists slash, uh, you know, AI researcher on Twitter. What could you tweet about? So I think that um, I, I sent my my inspirational tweet recently which was that i hope um, and this is a little self-serving but i would love it if people saw or read my my article about um, face recognition for police and how it might not be used it might not be being used well and and actually i think that that i was proven right that it was totally unreasonable to use off the shelf like Coco style body detection in body cam images um, because I, I want more people who are interested in social scientists, social science in general, in, in, in history and in inequality and in social justice. I want those people to also understand machine learning and be able to use machine learning or vice versa. People who are data scientists, I want to inspire them to think, how is your work going to be used in the world? How is your statistics and your mathematics, how is that going to be used in the real world to affect real people? Um, so, so my tweet would be, you know, please, please read all about how uh, Axon, the company, decided not to use facial recognition anymore. All right. I think that's a, that's a good wrap-up to our conversation. Um, I'll be sure to, uh, you know, include all the, um, some of your work and, you know, your, your social media profile so people can get a chance to dig in more and, and learn about some of the stuff that you've been uh, advocating for. Wonderful. Um, overall, you know, I really enjoyed this conversation, you know, learning about your background and getting some insightful advice in terms of, you know, how to navigate the academic world as well as, you know, contributing, I guess, like, you know, providing meaningful contribution to the research community in this field. Uh, and I hope that, you know, people who listen to this uh, podcast episode can can get the same thing. So, yeah, Jen, I uh, appreciate you spending your time with me and uh, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much. I, I love talking to you too, James, and, and I hope we get a chance to hang out uh, IRL soon. Thanks again. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.